Our reading is from Luke chapter 16 and it's verses 19 to 31 and you will find it in your pew Bibles on page 1050. It's the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat. What fell from the rich man's table, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot. Nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg of you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please do be seated. Um, just before I pray and just before we uh, reflect on this passage, um, just to share a couple of words that, that came from um, some thoughts I've been having this morning, some dreams. Um, so firstly, uh, genuinely believing that today is going to be the day of freedom for somebody, uh, for something that you've battled with, struggled with for a long time. Today, I'm trusting, is your day of freedom And I also had a sense that there's somebody here this morning, uh, when we talked about vulnerability a couple of weeks ago, maybe like, I can't remember when it was now, but a couple of weeks ago, that you maybe feel that there is like maybe one person that you can share your true self with, the real person that you really are, and you are fighting a massive battle to hide that from everybody else in the world, and it's proving to be exhausting. Uh, So I'm hoping that today is also an invitation to know that there is hope for you, uh, that there is life uh, on the, with that journey and that God knows that journey and knows how you are feeling and how you are facing that. I'm also going to say that as I sat down to prepare for today, uh, I could have um, tried to link it with harvest. 
but I didn't. Uh, so the talk is going to have nothing to do with Harvest this morning, but I think it's uh, essential that we carry on through the lectionary for today uh, and have this passage. But let's pray as we approach it together. Father, we thank you so much that your word is living and active, and we thank you for all the different ways in which you speak to us through it, the things you reveal, uh, the things you show us of yourself so that we can have a relationship with you. And particularly this passage is about the importance of the truth of your word uh, in scripture and in Jesus. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would have a fresh revelation of that truth today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so I don't know whether this is a a parable you know, or as you heard it read, what you were thinking, what you were feeling, because it's a a difficult one to read. And one of the dangers or one of the difficulties with this particular passage, as you know, it mentions quite explicitly heaven and hell. And that can be a difficult subject for many people to, to face. And one of the challenges, one of the difficulties we face is that there have been entire theologies of hell, particularly based on this passage, and in fact based from three words in this passage, uh, which is, let's remind ourselves, a parable. This isn't an event that actually took place. This is a story that Jesus is telling to his people uh, to make a greater and a wider point, which we'll come to in a minute. But yet entire theologies and backgrounds of understanding of heaven and hell have been based on this parable, which can lead us sometimes uh, to really dangerous places. Particularly with the whole image of fire and brimstone that we have of hell, we need to remember that that's a much later construct created by uh, a church... uh, professing to know Jesus, wanting to ensure that people behave the right way and so would terrify them into behaviour, essentially terrify them into right behaviour, especially through the dark ages. A lot of these images we have uh, become to the fore and then they become what we know today but they're not necessarily based in scripture itself and if they are they're based on uh, this passage which is a story, a parable, a made up story. That doesn't mean that hell doesn't exist, that doesn't mean that heaven doesn't exist uh, but it does mean that we need to be understanding what Jesus is getting at in this parable and understanding what hell is and what hell isn't. But this isn't going to be a theological treatise of heaven and hell because I don't believe that's what the parable is doing. I don't believe that's what Jesus is doing through this parable. Now one thing I did hear about hell which I found was quite helpful the other day was that hell is not some surprise twist at the end of the story. Uh, If you have chosen your entire life to reject God you're getting exactly what you asked for essentially. That's that's essentially what hell is but heaven obviously we know is more than just about a place we go in the sky with clouds and harps and angels. Again images from the past that are not scriptural at all. Heaven is definitely real and the kingdom of God as it's more often referred to uh, is very much here on earth as it is in heaven today. And this whole concept of understanding heaven and hell is a very complex and difficult thing which cannot be done in a Sunday sermon. It is a much deeper uh, thing than that, and our understanding of it needs to be uh, a good, scriptural, helpful understanding of it. But something else is happening in this passage, because if we focus everything on the context or or, or the location of this parable, i.e. heaven and hell, then we're missing what's being said. And what's being said is of far greater importance than where it's set. Because this is a really significant dialogue that's happening between the rich man and between uh, Abraham in this story. 
Now, we know that for the Jewish people who would have been hearing this for the first time, Abraham was a significant person in their person of history, their people of history, uh, and, and a very significant uh, symbol of, of heaven, uh, Abraham, and the promises that God has. And so uh, it's understandable why Abraham is in this parable. Uh, Jesus is using a language that people would have been able to relate to. And what he's doing in this parable, as with every parable, with the audience that's in front of them, as Liz said really helpfully a few weeks ago, he's inviting us and inviting the listener to say, where am I in this story? To not use this story as an opportunity to judge other people. Oh yeah, I know lots of people like the rich man. I know lots of people like Lazarus. I know lots of people in these positions. But rather he's saying, where are you in this story? And in the context of this parable and the parables we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks, Jesus is talking to a group of people who are clearly having issues with money and wealth and choosing other things above Jesus. Basically choosing to look to other things other than Jesus for their hope, for their health, for their salvation. They're looking in all the wrong places for that hope. And Jesus is wanting to show that hope is in him and in him alone. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Now often we tend to, if we look at it in context of this passage, we think about Jesus being the way, we forget he's also the truth. And he's also the life. So many people seem to sort of stop at Jesus being the only way to the Father, which he is. But he's also the truth, and he's also the life. And that's what this parable is getting to the heart at, that the truth is found in Jesus. And so he's saying that to an audience of people who are seeking truth in everything but Jesus. Who are finding truth in all kinds of places, finding their purpose, putting their identity in all kinds of other things other than Jesus. Whether that's uh, sticking to the law and following it completely, whether it's wealth, whether it's uh, their status, whatever it is, they're putting it in anything other than Jesus. And he's speaking into that audience, into that context and saying, where are you in this story? How do you relate to the rich man or maybe even relate to Lazarus? Because no doubt there would have been people of poverty listening to Jesus at the same time who would have been mistreated, ill-treated by those above them and would have related very easily to Lazarus, who incidentally Again, we see this, we saw this a few weeks ago, people are treating worse than even an animal. And so here we have this story of Lazarus in the, uh, well, interesting that translation said, I think, beside Abraham, but the literal translation is in his bosom, which basically means as close as you can possibly get. It's a really intimate sign of protection, of safety, of security, and so there is Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham, and here is this rich man uh, in hell. The most literal translation of the word hell there is the word grave. That more often is how it is translated. The actual word is often just means the grave. And here he is, and he's looking up to Abraham and seeing Lazarus in his bosom. And suddenly he's filled with regret. Filled with regret for how he's lived his life, the decisions he's made through his life, the way he's wasted, the way uh, he hasn't lived his life, the way that he could have done, perhaps felt he should have done. He's full of uh, perhaps guilt and sorrow for how he lived that life because he's seeing that Lazarus, whom I'm sure he was aware of, uh, was being treated badly by him and he sees that Lazarus has something that he doesn't and he wants it. He suddenly realized that he's gone through life seeking something that Lazarus already had. Some kind of safety, security in something other than wealth, in something other than money, in something other than himself. He's lived his life selfishly and he's suddenly his eyes are being opened uh, to, to, to Lazarus having something that he doesn't have and that he wants. 
And then he starts to think about his family. And on the surface of it, it appears to be quite selfless. He's thinking of his brothers, and he doesn't want his brothers to end up in the same way that he's ended up. He wants his brothers to have what Lazarus has got. Uh, and so it seems like he's sort of had this, this selfless kind of desire for his brothers to, to have that encounter so that, so that they will be with Lazarus and in the bosom of Abraham and have this wonderful life everlasting. But in a sense, that's also quite a selfish request because basically he wants that so that he feels better about his situation and about himself. What he's essentially asking for <clears throat> is, is a kind of Charles Dickens haunting. He wants Abraham to create it so that something or someone visits his family and essentially terrifies them so that they realize they've made a mistake and they repent and then they'll, they'll get to be in heaven with Abraham as, uh, as Lazarus is. He's wanting, he's asking for that to happen because that's how he imagines it will happen. He's wanting them to be terrified into truth. But we know that's not how the kingdom of God works. We don't frighten people into the kingdom. We love them into the kingdom. That's the way of Jesus. That's what Jesus did. He didn't guilt anybody to repent. His kindness leads us to repentance. Uh, and, and he led people by showing them that there's another way, by showing them that there's a greater truth, by showing them there's a better way to be, by showing them that he has life in all its fullness and he is on offer for us, by showing them it's not about measuring up it's grace and grace alone that gets us there and we're all receivers of that grace but the rich man is hoping that maybe if they become scared enough about where they'll end up uh, when they die then they might repent and might make a right choice unlike I did in my life and so he's asking a bit like Scrooge for three, no, he's not asking for three ghosts to haunt him, but he's asking for something like that. So he's taking, and I, I, do, I do genuinely think that Charles Dickens probably based his writings very much on this passage, um, and, and the rich man very much the role of Marley, who, who basically once he's died then haunts and says, you know, this, anyway, but that could be wrong, but that's what I think. But anyway, what we realise is that what he's asking for isn't what he should be asking for. And had he known who God really was, had he been in relationship with the God behind the words of God, he would have realised that what he's asking for is the wrong thing. But had he known that, he wouldn't have been where he was. <laughs> you see, because the thing he's come to realise, or the thing that Abraham is helping him to realise is that the truth is found not in making the right choices. The truth is found in the person of Jesus Christ, or in the words of God in this context. He is the way and the truth and the life. And the biggest barrier to truth is believing you already have it. The biggest barrier to truth is believing you already have it. By being so close-minded, you're not prepared to be open to the fact you might be wrong. In the things of the kingdom particularly, in the things of God who is a complete mystery to us, when we think we've defined him, he does something to help us realise we haven't. And so, I think what God is hoping to do here 
through Abraham in this story to the rich young man is to help him realize that the truth is found in God, in the words of God, in the truth of God, in, in who God is. And what he's known to be the truth, uh, or what he's come to rely on, his money, his wealth, his finances, has all crumbled away, and he's realized that that's not where you find purpose, identity, truth, life, all those things that he thought he'd find in those things. He didn't, because Lazarus didn't have any of those things, and somehow he's found life. It's not... Oh, I mean, it's completely deliberate that Jesus chooses the name Lazarus. Because the name Lazarus means resurrection. And Jesus is pointing to a truth that is to come. He even mentions resurrection explicitly in the passage. And saying there are some people who, even when they've seen Jesus risen from the dead, won't believe. Even if they see a resurrection like that of Lazarus, they still won't believe. Because the greatest barrier to truth is believing you already have it. And these people that Jesus is talking to believe they already have the truth. Many of them uh, Pharisees, many of them teachers of the law, therefore think they've got it all together, got it all worked out. And Jesus is saying, no, even they are failing to see the truth. And then you have these powerful words at the end where Jesus is saying, or Abraham, or God through Abraham is saying that, these people, if they saw these hauntings, it, it wouldn't make a difference. No matter what they saw, it wouldn't make a difference because they've had every opportunity to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and they haven't taken it. They've had every opportunity to realize that Jesus is the true fulfillment of every prophecy ever prophesied in the Old Testament and they've chosen not to accept that truth. They've seen the words. They've seen what Jesus can do. They've seen how he has fulfilled all these things. And still they're not believing who he is. Unlike Simeon that we think about at Christmas time. The story of Simeon. And he said this when he saw Jesus. He says this. Sovereign Lord as you have promised. You now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for the sight of all the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and to the glory of your people Israel. Simeon saw. He saw that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that was spoken. He saw in Moses, Jesus. He saw in the prophets, Jesus. He saw in the law, Jesus. He could see that Jesus was that fulfillment, whereas the people listening to this parable and the people in this story, they couldn't see that. They couldn't see that Jesus was who he says he was. Now, if the rich man really wanted his brothers to find life, he wouldn't pray for a haunting. He would pray for a revelation of Jesus Christ. He would pray for eyes and hearts to be opened to who Jesus really is. That they would have an encounter with the Son of God through his words. That they would know that he is who he says he is. They would believe, they would trust that he is Lord. And they would know that he has come to save and to give life and to be truth. As you sit here this morning and you think of friends and family that you love 
who don't know Jesus. I know I've asked this question before, but what is your motive for wanting them to know Jesus? Is it that you want their eternity to be secure? You want them to make sure they get to heaven and not hell? Because then you can feel better knowing that they're going to be there. Or have you realised that Jesus is so worth knowing, you know they're missing out? They're not just missing out on Jesus being the way, they're also missing out on him being the truth and the life in all its fullness. That's the motive the rich young man could have had, had he been open to Jesus being who he says he was. Had the audience of Philistines and Pharisees and those around, had they been open to the fact that Jesus was who he said he was, things would have been very different for them as well. And Jesus is desperately wanting them to know that as he says these words, as he tells this story, he's wanting them to know that he is the fulfillment of all that the prophets have said. And life is found in him, in him alone. Um, it's one of those things where when you speak of this and the challenge that comes from within it you have to completely trust that God is holding us this morning because each of us would have been challenged by something different from this passage and there'll be things you agree with and disagree with and that's fine because if you're agreeing or disagreeing at least hopefully there's an open mind to learn there what we can do and what we're going to do is to invite God himself to do what he wants to do in us now. So I'm going to ask Rick and Becky, I know we've got some furniture raising to do, but as they come up, just to invite you to stand for a moment, please. some words I read this morning that tap into a little bit of of Lazarus's condition in this story this quote from a writer that says I'm not a Christian because I'm strong and have it all together like the rich man I'm a Christian because I'm weak and admit I need a saviour like Lazarus our need of Jesus is great and what I'm hoping he's going to do this morning is increase not only our need of him but our want of him see the rich man didn't want Jesus because he felt his life was all sorted and all together and so I pray Holy Spirit would you increase our want of Jesus this morning our want of him not just being the way but also being the truth and the life and if there's one of those three things that we're feeling that we don't quite fully have a desire for we pray that you would increase that desire in us for you being the way the truth or the life 
Lord, if we sought for other things to be the way for us, we pray that you'd remind us that you've come that we may know the Father. Lord, if we sought truth in all the things other than you, we pray that you'd fix our eyes on you and give us open hearts and open minds that we won't be closed to your truth because we're so distracted by lies. And if we need to know you more as life, life in all its fullness, we pray that you'd help us to know that we can find life in relationship with you. And as we think of those we pray for, those we care about, those we long to see know you, we pray that you would just ensure that our motives for that are right. And regardless of our views or our theologies or our understandings of heaven and hell, Jesus, we thank you that whatever that is, whatever that means, that Jesus, you are our security. You are our hope. Our hope isn't found in a place or a destination. Our hope is found in a person and that person is you. So may we know that this morning. May you reveal that by your spirit this morning, that all our hope on you is founded.